Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you something. I, uh, I, I stopped by last night for a drink. I think I look like a moron in Burbank. Now, I, luckily, I know a lot of people in Burbank, so no one thought it was weird. But I, I ended up going, stopped by the Black Angus, and I stopped by uh, Fantasia to see the lovely Nance Marie, who's such a sweet bartender. She looks like a mixture of um, Jennifer Aniston and Barbara Streisand. Very odd. But Where is this? It, it's in Burbank, oh. Fantasia. But I, I felt like you needed because I had a coupon for uh, the lovely Joanne. I got her panties for Christmas. She loves Victoria's Secret. So I had a coupon for free panties. And so it was the last day. So I go to the Victoria's Secret here in the Burbank Mall. And I find myself walking through Burbank. And now I always wear shorts. I came to the conclusion. I'll almost be, I'll be 50 in, uh, end of October. I always wear shorts and a hat. I basically, I dress like a professional caddy. That's right. I look like a caddy. Mm-hmm. And I'm walking through Burbank with this little yellow Victoria's Secret bag. And People must have thought I was a freak. I'm thinking the girls at Victoria's Secret must have thought I was crazy when I walked in, put a coupon down on a pair of pink panties, and left. They must have thought I was crazy. But that was my day yesterday. And I I, I, I didn't get beat up. But I, everywhere, I, was, I had the panties. I was at the, next to the beer. I had a bag with panties. So anyway, enough about that. We have a great guest today. He's uh, I met him at the Ice House, and he was very nice. He said he'd come on the show, and we went through a few uh, rescheduling because of the, the, the jury duty, which I didn't get called, thank God. And uh, he's on today, and it turns out he's a fellow Philadelphian. Of course, I'm a New Jerseyan, but we say Philadelphian, just like he's technically from Radnor. That's not technically Philadelphia. Like, Cherry Hill's not technically, but we, you know what I'm talking about. My guest is Fritz Coleman. How you doing, Fritz? I'm doing great. Do you ever notice that? Like, Happy I, to be here. I have, I have a friend who, I, for years, I would tell people I'm from Philadelphia, because when you say Jersey or say Cherry Hill, they always sit there and, they, and they'll sit there and they'll go, oh yeah, what exit? Or, oh, so you must like New York. And I'm like, no, New Jersey's very, and so I just, just say, I would say I'm from Philadelphia. But my buddy was all offended when he found out, he's like, I've known you for five years. I thought you were from, you're from New Jersey. Now, well, see, that's the thing, uh, people from that part of the country, it just takes a, 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 a slight extra minute to figure out which side of the river they're from. And I always thought you were from Philadelphia in the brief time that I've talked to you because you had that accent. There's just something that draws you to it. Well, it's funny about the accent because uh, my father, he passed away about a while ago, but he, I mean, my dad had the heart. My dad was from the Northeast. Uh, he was from uh, Mayfair. and um, Roosevelt and Cotman. Well, yeah, but he was, he actually, he was on uh, <laughs> Princeton and Dittman. Okay. That was, uh, and, uh, but yeah, I remember, it. it's so funny because I was going through the Northeast, uh, Philly. I, I played at the... Uh, the casino, the Parks Casino in Ben Salem. And you go through, you know, to 995. And it's so funny, when I was a kid, that we would go over there for Christmas Eve to Northeast, and it seemed like it was like this trek, like you were going to another country. And now I'm like, wow, it's 10 miles. But he has he had the worst build-up accident. But there was so much cool humanity packed in that. That's what I loved about that city. The, the whole neighborhood concept of different cultures and all of it packed in there in that little 10-mile stretch. You'd have Italians and Irish and African-Americans. That's what I loved about that city. Yeah, well, that's like we always said, uh, my dad always said, Fishtown was the Polish neighborhood. There were certain neighborhoods you knew. And, and, yeah. then, and the funny thing is, I had a friend who lived in some area in Philadelphia. And if you, you went to the bar there and there was like, you know, you'd be sitting next to a guy who was in World War One, you know, and just like these people have been going to this bar forever, but they have such amazing stories and just the, and you're right, the neighborhood, I mean, I, I performed at the Italian uh, market during the Italian festival and it was so funny because we're doing comedy there and this is, God, like in 1990 and 
No one's listening. But it was just so funny how the Italians really stuck together because they had that greased pole contest. And this, <laughs> this Asian guy shimmies up, man. He's about, and, and this is no lie, people. Besides, there's like $1,000 if you get up top, but then there's like a big salami and a big provolone. And he shimmies up, and this Asian guy's about to get it. But they're like, there's no way in hell an Asian guy's going They started shaking the pole, and the guy slid down. It's crazy. So you grew up in Philadelphia, in Radnor. Mm-hmm. Now, I grew up in Wayne, which is in the western suburbs of Philadelphia. There was a place, a bar called Smoking Joe's that used to do comedy out there. I remember wow. Wayne. And uh, now, when you were a kid, uh, did you ever think you'd end up being into comedy and weather? I mean, what was... My entrance into weather was a complete accident. Okay. I, I, I came out here in, to Los Angeles in 1980 to do stand-up. I'd worked... I was in the radio business for 15 years and then worked in Philadelphia and small markets like Syracuse and Buffalo, New York. And as you know, when you're in radio, you always get these gigs uh, hosting at clubs. And I got invited to um, work in a lot of jazz rooms. And I was the host at a very uh, well-known jazz club in Buffalo, New York called the Tralfamador. Groups like Spyro Gyra started there and there was a lots of uh, wonderful sort of mid-level jazz groups and uh, if you know anything about jazz rooms, jazz players start on their own time. Even though the show's advertised to start at 8 o'clock, if the jazz group is not feeling the vibe until 8.23, then, then they're not going to start. Okay. But the club owner does a, a two-drink minimum and wants to start the show at 8 o'clock. So purely as a defense mechanism, I started writing comedy material for myself to fill the time from the start of the show to when the band decided to play. And so I developed some a, a little block of material, 15 or 20 minutes. Thought, well, I've conquered the Tralfamador Cafe in Buffalo, New York. I'm certainly ready for Los Angeles. Right. So I came out. Go ahead. No, I was going to say about Buffalo. Did you ever perform? There used to be a club called the Comedy Trap. Comedy Trap. I worked there. Fast, in. fast Abby Dobowitz or and, something like that. And I, it was and it was awful. And I and I did a Tonight Show and plugged that gig. And and then when I I'd never been there, but I plugged the gig because I lived there and I had friends that would come. And then after I plugged the gig, I went back and saw it. I was sorry I gave it a plug. Well, I was surprised because my my brother's uh, late wife was from uh, Amherst. Tonawanda, whatever. That's beautiful, and, yeah. Yeah, and I, I had never been, and I always saw Buffalo on TV, and you see the big stadium, and I remember when I performed there, I took the train, I was living outside New York, and I couldn't believe it was just like, it was like Collingswood, New Jersey. It was like a small, I mean, you think of a football team, you think of the big market, the downtown was just like, like if you Let drive down you, Magnolia and Burbank, it was and, like, And wow. rabid sports fans. My ex-wife was a cheerleader for the Buffalo Bills, okay. the Buffalo Jills, back in the days when they didn't buy them uniforms, they had to buy their own. They didn't buy them uh, warm weather outfits, and these women would cheer in 20 below zero wind chill factors in shorts and stockings and paper thin boots it was awful but there is no greater town for rabid sports fans sit out there in the middle of a blizzard and watch games it's crazy. crazy now now what made you decide to go into comedy when you were a kid did you watch a lot of comedy because a lot of comics it's weird when you talk to people who do comedy a lot of people they just they watch it as a kid or like gene perrette the amazing writer was on a few weeks ago and he just him he wrote jokes for lucille ball and phyllis diller and he as a kid he just had this he just loved the comedy. Did you follow comedy as a kid? I'll tell you, I had an epiphany about this. Um, all of my heroes when I was growing up were people like Carson and Hope that had the ability to control the emotions of a room with a joke. I just thought that was the most power you could ever have on stage. However, I'd never seen a stand-up. 
And then I went to see George Carlin at a place called the Valley Forge Music Fair. I don't I know. know if you remember, I they remember. had these summer theaters that would be up for about six weeks, and it was a tent, but it was quite beautiful. They had one in Cherry Hill, and then they ripped it down, right? Because I remember when I was little, I still remember this. I saw the unsinkable Molly Brown, and Tammy Grimes starred in it, and they shot a gun, and it scared me, and I started crying. <laughs> oh, and I wow. still remember that, but that yeah. was the same concept, the Valley Forge. And it was beautiful, and it was a, it was a theater in the round, and it had a Lazy Susan stage, so slowly, almost imperceptibly, this stage would rotate counterclockwise. And I saw George Carlin on stage, and it was the first time. And I didn't understand the concept of a stand-up that, you know, it takes years to put an hour and a half material together. And, and, and But it was almost like I was watching a religious shaman on stage. I thought, how can this guy talk for an hour and a half and just convulse the audience? I thought it was the greatest amount of power that a person could have. And in my insecurity, I just thought that was a really cool way to draw attention to myself. And so I knew from that point on, I, I didn't consciously make a decision to be a stand-up, but I thought, wow, I would love to try that. I would love to feel what that's like to have everybody in the palm of your hand for a long period of time, not looking at a note. And it was awesome. And then I got into Robert Klein and some of the old school guys. That were on. So when, what was your first time on stage? I mean, was it, was it in Buffalo? or was It was it in Buffalo. I, I, I was the MC at this show. And then, uh, honestly, purely as a defense mechanism, because I had to fill 20 right. minutes till the band was ready to go, I started to write jokes. And I'd been in radio, and so I knew how to, I knew a short-form joke. I knew how to edit jokes and put the, you know, the funny part last and all those kinds of things. But I'd never heard it in front of a live audience, and I just did it and sort of like built this act out and had about 15 minutes and then I deluded myself into thinking well I got a 15 solid minutes I'll move to LA came to LA never been to LA went to the comedy store my first night here because that's where he had to go back then and on stage was Billy Crystal Charles Fleischer you know uh, Gary Shandling was working on his first Tonight Show shot Jimmy Walker and all these guys were on stage and blew the roof off the dump and I was so deflated I thought what made me think I could ever be in the same market as these guys where did you move when you came out here? Because you never, because like, if you're never out here, and it's so funny, and see you being from Philadelphia area, and I noticed when the first time I visited here, and I was living in San Diego at the time, you know, back east, if it's a bit, you, you know, you're in a bad neighborhood in Philadelphia because there's tenements. I mean, you, you go through West Philadelphia and you go, I remember I used to take this one little comic, uh, Steve Thomas, this little fat African American kid, funny as hell. He'd always open for me and do gigs, and I drove a little Fiero, and I would pick him up and take him to the shows because I said, you, you know, you didn't want to take an opener. Like, yeah, you know. And uh, he lived in the projects. And he would go, I'll meet you. I go, no, I'll come again. No, you don't want to come get me. He goes, a white guy in that car, not coming to my neighborhood. But you know, but like in LA, you don't know the neighborhoods because you no. sit there and it's like, even in like the worst neighborhoods, there's houses. Like in Philadelphia, you know, it's like University of Pennsylvania. Great, great, great. Whoop, big stop sign. Do not go beyond here. In LA, you only know by the gunfire. Yeah, it's like, pistols, it's a bad sign. So were you, were you a little scared when you moved out here? I Where was did you, scared. Did you plan I, it? I'd never been here. I did plan it. The only place I had to stay was on the floor of a friend of mine's, uh, uh, a lady who had produced some commercials. I was in a New York state, lived out here and let me live on her floor for a week. And then after I got here, I rented an apartment in West Los Angeles, one block away from the West Los Angeles Police Department. And in that apartment, I got three bikes stolen across the street from the That's police funny. department. So I, I moved here, and, and but I, I thought, and when I got here and I went to the comedy store the first night and realized that I was in way over my head, I was so ill-prepared for the caliber of talent in this town. But I thought, well, I'll stay till I run out of money. And about two years later, 
uh, I finally did all the open mics in town, became a staff performer at what they call a paid regular at the comedy store. And one Friday night, uh, my boss from NBC was in the audience with his wife. And uh, that my, uh, had come with a, a group of my friends, and he saw my act, and uh, it was a good night on stage. And afterwards, this is a true story, afterwards his wife, and he came backstage and said, I know this is an odd question, but do you have any interest in doing some vacation relief weather fill-in work for me on Channel 4? I need a guy to do weekends. I need a guy to do some fill-in. We've got a weekday guy who hasn't had a vacation in a year. Would you be interested? And I thought, well, I was making $45 a night at the comedy store. And you another job? I had no other job. Okay. And so I, I, I was just burning through with cash. I had like 6000 bucks that I'd saved. And um, uh, I, I said, when do you want me to start? And can I, can I wash your feet? Can I carry your luggage? And I, said, I couldn't believe it. I said, you know, I'm not a weatherman. I, he said, fabulous. There's no weather in California. This would be perfect. That's, that's what's funny. I always, I always say that. That's so funny. It's like, it's, it's so, it's right now they're talking about the Farmer's Almanac and that Super Bowl. It might, it might, um, it might. Right snow but then i think who was it, it was uh and tony kornheiser who i love they were just railing on the farmer's almanac and they're saying they're not and al roker this morning made fun of him too saying he goes but that's why they hang it up at an outhouse he goes it's a great and it, it is a piece of american culture but of course february snow in new jersey however statistically it's probably as accurate as your basic <laughs> right. local weatherman we've had the same weather in california since the paleolithic era it's morning clouds <laughs> and fog hazy afternoon sun but every day i have to show up and present it like i've never said it before well, what i love is and i'll be honest and i, I you know because i go back to see my girlfriend a lot and this summer has been the worst summer back east just so you know um, yeah. rain wise they yeah. they broke the record of rain in the summer at the end of july mm -hmm. and she would get home from work and we would go to the gym but every night at five and i don't want to work out anyway but you know i, I had a heart condition while and i have to keep i do my cardio and it just every night at five it would start raining every friday it would rain and it was just awful and then you know we we forget how spoiled we are in california i mean when she came out she wanted to learn how to surf so i got her a surf lesson for her birthday she flew out the next day hurricane sandy starts it's getting killed i mean i've run some facebook who've lost houses you know because i have friends because i went to school near the jersey shore and we're sitting there on a saturday in october in malibu she's out surfing i'm on the beach in 85 degree weather i'm like i feel i didn't want to post anything on facebook just because i don't want to rub it into my friends faces but so so this was this was so you were doing comedy and then so this guy just came up to you come up to me and, and, asked, and you didn't know him you just he just no you, you liked no. your set i i knew some people that worked at nbc from the comedy business sales when they brought their boss out to see me it was totally coincidence and so uh, he said, Art, will you have to audition for this job? So this was a Friday night. I was working in the original room at the comedy store. Um, the guy said, come in for an audition Tuesday. I did an audition. I was told I had the job Thursday. Now, what was the audition? Did you? Did you? I had to do two weather forecasts in front of the green screen and pretend I knew where I was pointing. Now, what's that like? Because I always see it. It's like I always. You never really see it. And and no. they, they you're in front of a green screen. If you've done the Universal tour, you know what it is. You stand there and you're not really standing in front of a map. You're standing in front of like sort of a glowing green screen, and you just gesture broadly, like uh, the, you know the vortex of low pressure in Cincinnati, okay. and you point over this way, and it doesn't have to be right on this. As long as it hits Ohio, you're okay. So when you did the audition, did you did you come out? Like, oh, it was awful. I that's the most of because it's a like seriously every day uh, as uh, Muslims bow to Mecca I bow in the direction of Detroit because that's where my boss now is a general manager of a station and he literally put his uh, his reputation on the line to hire me I had no skills I was awful but back in those days 
my chops as a comic and being able to react, you know, it's live television, being able to react to, to the anchors and have some fun was all that was important. There was the same forecast from April to October, morning clouds and fog, hazy afternoon sun. And then I had two and a half minutes to fill after I said that. And he wanted somebody that had some chops. Right. These days, it's not because of the short American attention span. They, they don't let you do anything funny. But... Uh, so I got it, and then that's what he wanted. He wanted someone. He wanted. He, he said, "You're you're more than a weatherman. You're going to be the palate cleanser between the tragedy and the sports." You know, I want somebody to have some fun. So, so that's how you do. It. So, so you, you get hired for the weekend and to fill in. Yes, did that for two years. Then my predecessor left, and I got bumped up to the weekday job, and I've been there thirty-one years. It's amazing. It's so funny, and you think it's and it. I guess because we talked earlier about like Jim O'Brien and people like that. That great guy. S- some of these weathermen. I mean. I remember as a kid watching Jim O'Brien, and if people don't know, Jim O'Brien was a great uh, weatherman who died, unfortunately. And he was in a iconic in two mediums. He was a radio hero. He did mornings at WFIL in Philadelphia, and he also transitioned to weather and became like a nationally famous. And he was funny. He would you expect Very you would funny. expect something goofy from him. That's and, all. And we watched. He would call it. weather systems. We call them doodads. He said, "Watch this little doodad here. It's going to move into New Jersey and it's going to cause the problems, but it'll be gone." He was very relatable. So now, okay, so now you're, you're doing weather. Now, now as you're doing weather, do you feel that it, it affected your stand-up? Because it's a better, it's like people now, they may think, it's like anything. If, as we say, like in Philadelphia, used to be WMMR. John DeBello was a morning Oh, so, right. And yeah. he would go in and he would host a comedy show. It was show. like the first underground independent radio station. Right. It and, was wonderful. And Pierre Robert, he's yeah. still on. And uh, he, but John DeBello would go on air. And he, and he had this big following. And then he would go to the comedy club, and he wasn't a comic. Then they had a guy named Mark the Shark. It wasn't a comic. So a lot of times people didn't... T- they knew they weren't comics. It took them as a uh, radio guy trying to do comedy. For you, because you were a comic who got in the weather, did, did it change how people perceived you as a comic did they think oh, would you, he's like he's the weatherman he doesn't do comedy did they right. didn't know that you did comedy it's to this day that is the issue because I've been around a while and new generations are coming up but I like that because if they're not suspecting it and they say well Fritz Coleman's on the bill tonight is he going to bring maps so will he be wearing right. a tie and have a pointer <laughs> what's he going to talk about and I get up there and I love a surprise because I headline I mean I was on the Tonight Show eight times uh, I, I uh, opened for Ray Charles in concert. I opened for America. I opened for uh, David Sanborn, a saxophonist uh, up and down the coast. So, I, I mean, I've had, I had a nice mid-level comedy career, but I have three children, and I was very fortunate to have this job. It's different having it in L.A. than it is anywhere else, because I could do, I never stopped comedy, but I had this wonderful ongoing day job that I, that I love. And well, you said you did, you did the Tonight Show eight times. Mm-hmm. Now, what when what was the first year you did it? And I guess it was Carson years. I did I did it with everybody. Okay. I did it because the beautiful thing was my office is right upstairs from the old Tonight Show stage, stage right one, right down the street yeah. from here. And I was like the utility player. They'd have guest cancellations, and Jim McCauley, who was the talent coordinator for the comics at the time, would call me and say, I had a fallout. Do you have six minutes? And I'd say, yes. He'd say, give me the six minutes over the phone and make sure that was something that wasn't going to offend anybody. And I would go do it. It was awesome. It was an awesome way to be. So I did it with Johnny. I did it when Jay was the substitute host. I did it with Gary Shandling. I did it with Joan Rivers. So uh, I did it with everybody. I did the Bob Hope Christmas special. I played Brooke Shields' boyfriend on a Bob Hope Christmas special. Okay. And Tony Randall's son. No, Brooke Shields was Tony Randall's daughter, and I played her boyfriend. So That's I've had some wonderful experiences. Now, take me back to the first time you did The Tonight Show. Cause, I got bumped twice before I made it on. Okay, because people like, don't know that back then, that when Carson did it, like a very dear friend of mine, my comedy mentor, Jeff Martyr, mm-hmm. got a... Uh, 
that couch the first time and um i used to i used to write for a website with him and he's just a very dear friend and and i know jeff we worked yeah, together for years and he had said how it was so bad back then when he got couch it was huge mm-hmm. now and so back then people understand like now it's the tonight show but back then it could change careers like tom dreesen said when he was on he said he went from you know living in his car to doing the tonight show and right. and william morris yeah. knocking down yeah. his door and, and you're opening. in vegas so you know what that, year that's was exactly it? Was right. first year you did i it. i my first shot was 83 and uh and it was not that type of an experience for me because uh macaulay thought it was a great hook that i was a weatherman and a comedian because you know you do six minutes and four minutes of the act was being self-deprecating about being a weatherman which endeared me to the audience at least the ones from la that knew me so it was kind of an interesting hook but that was just on the downside of the tonight show being transformative i mean i think dreesen holds the record he had like 62 performances on the tonight show that's one of those guys who just has stories yeah and david brenner same thing david brenner from philly uh when i went to temple all the professors could talk about was david brenner he was a documentary film major at temple and they and he went he had one of those transformative experiences the night after he went on he would never stop working for the rest of his career but i think it stopped and i think what did that was cable television because there were uh, there were other venues for for young comics to get exposures and do longer than six minute sets and then I think it stopped and I also got out here at the tail end of the boom of the club business you know right after Leno and Letterman and Freddie Prinze and a few of those guys had really put the comedy store on the map and then there was as many comedy clubs as there were Starbucks in every town in America I was on the downside of that so that started to dry up so uh, in, in connection with that I think the Tonight Show stopped being that transformative time where your career was going to change well you know what's weird about it, and with you being on the Tonight Show is people already knew who you were because the weather a lot of times people who do the Tonight Show people don't know who the comic is nowhere. and then they go Oh, this is, but you were already a uh, familiar face to the people out here. In, 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 for the local audience, and I don't know what the percentage of the audience is, but a lot of the Tonight Show audience is people who live in town that bring out-of-town guests, but that's the minority. So I still had to work for it. But then, you know, so I, I, I did my, uh, my weather material and then branched off, and it was great. It was still the most wonderful experience. But what made it nice for me was I was bumped twice, which is the most gut-wrenching experience. Once with Charles Grodin, because he wouldn't be quiet. He just kept talking. So I, I loved him on the shows, but yeah. he and He's a wonderful dry wit, and uh, I loved him too, but uh, he went and I got bumped. And, then, and, you know, you have everyone you know that uh, before social media that you hand-wrote notes to that you're going to be on The Tonight Show. And then... Uh, and then um, um, uh, oh my God! Now I can't remember her name. You know, she was married to uh, Richie Sambora from the from uh, Heather Andre. Locklear. Heather Locklear was on, you know, with T.J. Hooker, and Carson would just sit there and gloat over her <laughs> giant chest. And so that went too long. So two times I got bumped. The third time I'm going, well, geez, I hope I finally get on tonight show. And by that time, I literally had uh, performed scar tissue over my nerves, and, I, and it really it helped me to relax. And I, and I didn't get called over to the couch. I had a lovely medium to strong set that night. And it still is what I call your comedy bar mitzvah. It's it, it's the greatest moment of your comedy life. It's impossible to describe. Now, when they bump you, do they sit there and say you're coming back the next night, or do, is it a while longer? Or? They, they they try to rebook you immediately. You know, on the old Carson format, you would it, it would go eleven thirty five, eleven thirty, 
straight up. It wasn't 1135, it was 1130. So they do the headline guest, which would be first, and then take a commercial break. He, he would do a set piece with the cards and something, you know, the Karnak, and then he would do the headline guest, and that went until about 8 or 10 after 12. And then there was that sort of that, that window right there, and they had a musical guest or something that they had to fill in to close the show out. So that, that collapsible middle window is where the comic went. If they didn't have enough time, they bumped you out. And so they, Fred DeCordova came in both times and said, yeah, we're not going to make it tonight. I'm sorry, we'll get you on. And they do. He, they were great about getting me back on. But it helped my nerves. It, okay. was, it actually worked in my favor. I was going to say, we were very, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of people who've been on the show have said, you know, they were nervous, but they're excited for the Tonight Show. Were you really nervous the first time? I mean, did you, because, I mean, it's so funny. We think about it, and, you know, you're a comic, and you've been doing comedy for a long time, and, you know, you're headlining clubs, and doing six minutes, first of all, it's so funny, is hard, because you're like, what am I going to do? Yeah. And we shouldn't get nervous, because you know, first of all, the reason you're on the Tonight Show is because you're funny, and they wouldn't put some guy who sucks on. And secondly, you know you can do it. And, but were you really nervous when you were going to go Yes, because of the iconic nature of that. Uh, you know, we all that is in the back of our heads. All of our heroes were born out of that Tonight Show experience, whether it's David Brenner or Robert Klein or, you know, Richard Pryor, any of your heroes that you saw in that venue and try to imagine what that was like. That, that it's, it's, it's the universe that that show uh, had created for you in your life, and it became really big. It's, I, I suppose it's like meeting the Pope or something. It really, really was. And it, 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 uh, that, that sort of weight hasn't been there since, I think, since Johnny retired. With all due respect to Jay, it's just different. There's a lot, you know. Well, John, and I think also when it comes to that, it's also, you know, we think back, and I was talking to someone about this the other day, about, you know, when I was a kid, we would go camping. We had a, the, the trailer, and we had a little TV in the camper, and... Um, on Saturday, we would watch All in the Family, and we would watch the Jeffersons. And back then, people, there was not a lot to watch. I mean, it was like, when you were a kid, it was a treat to be able to stay up and watch The Tonight Show. Just like when I was a kid, it was a treat to go to McDonald's. If you got an A in your report card, they give you a hamburger. Now, oh, no, you know, because now, because everyone just, they don't, kids stay up all hours of the night. And I think it was different then because everyone, I mean, the thing is, everybody watched The Tonight Show. Right. There wasn't any other, you know. His then, competition wasn't even really with him. Merv Griffin never did a monologue. It wasn't a topical monologue. Johnny was the barometer of the mindset of the time through the Vietnam War and all that post-World War II mindset. Now it's different. Now, the satire of the day about current events has already happened two hours earlier on The Daily Show. I mean, people already know what the twist is on the day's events. Really, in longer form, it's a half-hour monologue that he does about the events of the day and goes deeper than Jay or Dave can go. So they still do monologue. It just it had more weight back then. It truly was the one little 10-minute block of telling America how they're supposed to feel about whatever was going on. He was the only guy doing it. And it was, it was, it was I mean, it was a great time in comedy when you think about it. Oh it was just, it, you know, and I look back at it even, and I've told this story before, I had George Carlin Toledo Window Box, the album. Now, yeah. I had no idea what the Toledo Window Box was. My parents were old-fashioned. They had no idea what, yep. didn't know what pot was. I think years ago, my mom said, I would like to try pot, but I guess I would, I would have to grow it because I wouldn't want to buy something <laughs> that's not good. <laughs> and I'm like, Mom, I'm like, I'm like I don't know. I, I'm not going to, I mean, I smoked pot in college, but I'm like, going to buy my mom pot. But they, that's the thing. But those albums, I would listen to it. And even though I didn't know what Toledo window box was, just the way that he would express himself and say it, I would laugh. His gift was his wordplay. 
and his ability to manipulate language. That's what drew me to him. It was just the power of language. There are very few guys who are brave enough to do that. Remember Dennis Wolfberg before he passed away? Yes, yes. A, a brilliant comic. Big eyes. A, a big eyes, but what I loved about him and, and his his experience was as a teacher where, where he learned his sort of how to be theatrical and use big language in front of a classroom. I could hear him doing it. But he wasn't afraid to use language. These days, because of the shortened American attention span, people you know have a much narrow vision of stuff. You couldn't you couldn't do an act like Dennis's and have it connect with people because I don't think people would get it. Right. It it, it has changed so much. It just well. Okay. We, no, we, earlier you said you'd open for some bands like America. No, and no, Red Rose. Yeah, right. Now, what was that like? Because Ray you, Charles too, which yeah, was the which biggest. Which I can imagine. I mean, Ray Charles is huge crowds. You know, you're you're a club. Your club act where you know we're used to clubs and back then clubs hold 200 and then you start open for ray charles that's so probably in a casino or somewhere where there's, there's probably a few thousand now i opened for him at the universal amphitheater which is six thousand five hundred. so what was that like because i always think for come i did fourth and b in san diego a few years ago and it's weird because there's so many people and you're so used to like there's is that an people. outdoor venue is no this like was festival? it was downtown it was like i think it held like four thousand yeah and it's you, I, you i'll you tell you i'm different it. i you, you time your voice to the back of the room and coming back. It's, it, it, it takes a minute to do that. It takes three or four minutes. Uh, oddly enough, and I think this has to do with a, a fear of intimacy, the bigger the crowd, the better. I love big crowds. Okay. And uh, I like a full room in a big venue. I, I've always been that way. I don't know because maybe I can't, don't have to have eye contact with somebody who's having a marginal response to what I'm doing. It's all just big there. But I, I, love, I love the bigger venues. I worked at uh, the Wave Fest where the Wave is the soft jazz station right. in town. And they used to bring uh, George Benson and all these great uh, acts in. And I did my comedy there for 10,000 people at the tennis court at UCLA. And it was one of the best nights I've ever had. Just beautiful, smart people. Boom, 10,000 people. See, that's the one funny thing is when you say 10,000 people too, it's just so, it's one of those things where when you're having a good set, you, yeah. you first of all, I think... You know how the laugh reaction is, mm -hmm. but when it's 10,000, it's that much more. So mm -hmm. for me, I feel like 10,000 people would throw my timing off because I'd be sitting there going, I just did 30 minutes and I only did eight minutes material. No, that, that's, that's the thing. You know, just waiting for the echo to come back. Well, that's true. And if it's not going well, 10,000 people is like being the seventh ring of hell right. because, <laughs> you know, that, that's rejection on a scale you can't describe to most people. Well, that's but I bet I, it never, that never happened to me, thank God, because I didn't do it that often. Well, that's what I say about the main house and the ice, uh, main room and the ice house. If you go up there and don't have a good set, get out of comedy. No, cause, seriously. Because that, that crowd is the best room. The, the best, it's a great place to record a CD. Yeah. The best club, I, and for me, the best club I ever performed at was the club I started out. And maybe that's why. But there was a club in Philadelphia called the Comedy Factory Outlet. Right. And it was on Bank Street. And it was, you go down these steps. And uh, so many great comics came out of Philadelphia, you know. And, and one of the funny. Tom Wilson? Yeah, I, I, I don't know him. I, I know of him. He's from Philly. He went to Radnor High School. But, okay. but he was, he's a lot younger than I am. But I think Rich Scheidner is from Rich, South yeah, Jersey. One of the great writers. Yeah, it's been so on, good. Been on the show twice. Just, I, I'm just coming to tell stories because he mm. has so amazing stories. Mm. But uh, the, the funniest guy in Philadelphia was a guy named Grover Silcox, which no one really knew. And he was a true meaning of cool. And it's always you sit there and go, wow. It's like the guy, I mean, he did different radio things, but it's one of those people, and he would do this club in Philadelphia, and there was these stairs that would go down, and then it was like a, a alley, and he came in this cool thing, and, and they had videotapes, and they would show a limo coming up, and it was a videotape, and him getting out, and all these hot girls with him, and then he'd come up with a drink in his hand, and then he would come up, and it was amazing. But that's like, that's like the ice house is that kind of room. It's just, it's so easy. 
pretty amazing. 50 years, uh, I think 52 years, and major CDs have been recorded in there. Steve Martin did an album in there. Lily Tomlin did an album in there. Smothers Brothers did an album in there. That room is iconic, and the audiences are great. It's changed a little bit, uh, but I love to work there. I was there last weekend. I didn't work on the main stage. Paul Rodriguez was on the main stage. I did stage two, that little funky little room next door, and I love that room. That's where I met you. Right. right. The Andy Dugan show. It's, it's, it's a cute little place. So, now... You're, I mean, you're, you're a well, weather. You're, you're a personality. Mm-hmm. I mean, people know you. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like it's like anything. You know, people know weather, and, and I think it's weird. Is the weather has changed a lot? I noticed that now there's a lot of uh, hot girls. I mean, it's every oh, yeah. every market. Like I go back to Philadelphia. There's Gina Parveen, and there's all these girls, and and I guess that's for me. Well, first of all, for me, and you know, growing up back east, do you think the news is different out here? I think it's much more upbeat out here when you watch the news in back east. Oh, yeah. Back east, it's you sitting there going, you you forget about it, living oh, out here, yeah. you, you almost cry. Yeah, back there in Philly, they had eyewitness news with uh, Jim Garner and those guys He's that would still stare at you like you were guilty of the crime he was reading about. And they're re- you know, they're saying, do, you remember, they, do you remember Larry Kane? Larry, he was the guy that started it. He worked at WFIL, and then he would go work at WABC in New York on the weekends. He was the original Eyewitness News guy. His top lip never moved. I know. I mean, I, it's but he, had that eye, he would lean in there, and he had that eye contact, and he dared you to not look away from the TV. It was, it was an interesting. It is. To answer your question, yes, it's, it's softer out here, which is why I was hired in the first place. And you, we used to do in the evening, the 5 and 6 o'clock news, what some of the morning shows do. Now it was fun. Oh, yeah, and we got a couple of news stories, but let's get back to having fun with us. It's totally different now. It's so competitive now that they, and the clicker gave people so much power that they're afraid to allow people to be bored for one nanosecond because they feel like somebody's there, like, like they have a Glock in their hand and they're ready to change that channel this second year. So they, I used to do five minutes of time with the weather at five o'clock and toss in a couple of light stories. Now I get two minutes. It's you know what's weird also is when you said five and six back you know back when I was growing up there was only six o'clock six o'clock and eleven yeah. there was not there was not the five now there's like you can any time in a day between KCAL five this you can right. go two o'clock three there o'clock, used to be a o'clock. four five and six o'clock in our show and I got to tell you why it's a very lucrative way of programming it, it's it's a cost effective programming procedure and and it's less expensive than than. Uh, uh, broadcast rights and syndication rights for a big show like the Ellen DeGeneres show. She's very valuable to us. I'm just using that as an example. Because the licensing fees on those things are huge. News is a very lucrative uh, um, way to make money. Plus, it's a great... The why, why it's important to a television station is it's important to the local... Uh, uh, the local aspect of your programming, um, local retail establishments, local car dealerships want to be on a show that has a local identity, and news gives your station a local identity. Now, is there? It's so funny. I, I, I don't know what's in my mind, though. But is there like a is there like a competitiveness with you and other weathermen? Because it's like it's like everyone. Okay, and and it breaks down. Like in Philadelphia, they have Hurricane Schwartz. There's a little. And he's great. You know, he's just and you know you know like and then they have the hot girl, and here they have Jackie Johnson. They have you, and then they have. Dallas Reigns, who looks like a model. I mean, everyone's like, you know, and my and I'm funny thing about him is my my friends own uh, the store Full of Life, uh, Clinton Patty. And they 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 live next door to Dallas Reigns. He said he's the nicest. He guy. is the world's nicest guy, and but he, he just he, has that look like yeah. it's so California. And and you're sitting there, and it's like, come on, you know. But I mean, do you guys they get along? Is like, is there is there like a club I, I where the weathermen have? I, we we no, there is not. Like, yeah, I mean, well, it, it, and I'll tell you, uh, uh, this is the first market I've been in where there isn't more interaction between either in radio or television. We used to have a thing called drinking with the enemy, 
which was everybody show up at Firefly and Studio City on a Thursday night after the 11 o'clock news and have a drink. And that would, that other than the Emmy Awards that not everybody gets invited to, it was the only time you'd have a chance to uh, to meet your competitors. But we're, we're, we're very disconnected here. It's not like we have giant softball games and stuff. They used to, but there, there is none of that anymore. It's weird. I wonder, it's just, I guess the market changes. And I, I don't know, it's just, it's so funny because it's like you guys have something in common. And, you know, you're weathermen, you know, mm-hmm. and you're all, and the funny thing is, People, this is just, I may be wrong, but I think if, if I asked someone walking down the street, people would know who you are before a anchor. I mean, I just think because people, because you guys are by yourself and you're doing the weather, the news, the news is the story. So people sit there and they, it's the the the, the person delivering second. But for you guys, they sit there and they they watch you. And well, we, I'll tell you, uh, the, the, the weatherman, not so much anymore, although I still do it because I've been doing it a long time, was sort of the uh, concierge of the newscast. His job was not only weather, but he was sort of a, a, a local identity guy. We were the guy that would go out and go to the supermarket opening or do the community outreach or go interview the people decorating the rose floats for New Year's Day. There was there was more of a community connection to the weatherman. I think people felt that connection. We're in a really interesting position in the newscast. We're probably the least threatening part of the newscast. Uh, the, the anchors are reading the freeway chases and the drive. Right buys and all that and the weatherman unless there's a storm and houses are moving in laguna beach is kind of this this steady sort of friendly figure in the midst of all this chaos there we're not as threatening as the rest of the news i think people make that connection now is your original name is your real name fritz fritz uh, my my real name is frederick uh all the all the males in my family are frederick but uh my my uh, grandfather was german and Fritz in German means is for little Frederick. And my father, my name is Frederick. My dad's name is Frederick. He would call me Fritz to distinguish me from my father. And it just kind of stuck. I hated it when I was a kid. Now I like it because it's different. But it is. It, it's like it's like me. Everyone's called me Coop my whole life. Cooper yeah. or Cooper. I mean, half people think my first name is Cooper. They're like, oh, you're, you're, what? Your name's? Why they call you Steve? I go, oh, that's my name. But so so, what are some of the? Uh, I mean, you're you're very recognizable and you, you're known all around town. What are some of the weirdest experiences you've had as Beth? Have you ever had like some? awkward experiences yes. where just people yes, bother you like many. just sit there tell me some of them because I just I always many. crack up some of these stories people tell me so uh, one night about 10 years ago uh, I got off the 11 o'clock news and I went up to the Vons in the Lakeside Shopping Center which is right down the street here and I was you know I was going to buy some Pepsi AC to you know quell my stomach from dealing with 25-year-old middle management throughout the day, so I had to go there, and I went there to get a Snapple and some Pepsi AC, and this and this man uh, literally lunged at me, not, not in a threatening way, but he was so surprised to see me, you know, with a haggard look on my face at Vons at midnight. Vons is a grocery <laughs> store here in Los Angeles. So he jumped out at me, and he goes, let me just tell you something about you. I said, oh, man, this is going to be ugly, and I hope somebody else is watching. I'm going to need a witness for this, and he said, you know, I'm a big fan of yours, but I want to tell you how what you do affects uh, what we, uh, affects people. I said, okay. He said about uh, two years ago, um, you were forecasting rain for Saturday. This was like a Tuesday forecast. And, and 
by Thursday, that was the cutoff time where I had to put a down payment on a tent for my daughter's outdoor wedding. And this tent was going to cost me $6,000. And I had to tent the backyard because the wedding was going to be outside in a gazebo. And uh, I called you and on a Thursday. And, I, he, and he said, I got to call this uh, tent rental place now. And are you telling me, I didn't remember this phone call, are you telling me that it's going to rain uh, on Saturday? I'm saying, I am, I am nearly convinced that it's going to rain. We're going to have about a quarter of an inch of rain. The winds will be out of the southwest at 5 to 15 miles an hour. We'll have clearing in the afternoon, but your wedding's at 2 in the afternoon. Probably won't clear it to that. I, I would go with the tent. So as it turned out, the man said, it turned out to be one of the most beautiful days in Southern California. There wasn't a hint of rain. So if I was a mad person, I would have sued you for the $6,000. But the beautiful thing was the sun came out and we live in Pacific Palisades and it was great looking over the ocean and all the wedding photographs came out so beautifully. So that tempered my anger for you. But he said, I just want you to know. (laughs) Isn't that weird? It's like they're blaming you. Okay. And that's what cracks me up. It's like, if, yeah. Okay, if I piss a listener off, it's something I say, okay? Right. I can't help that. If I go, right. hey, you know, whatever, or if I tweet something right. and it offends someone. But when it's the weather. Yeah, get over it. It's an act of God, yeah. so get out of my face. And it's, it's and plus, it's California. It's probably going to be sunny right. anyway. But the thing about California is, and this is another thing, and you know this because you're a resident here, but people from the outside don't get this. There is no such thing as mild weather in Southern California. If we have a billionth of an inch of drizzle, it causes a catastrophe in the freeway. People don't know how to drive. It hasn't rained in three months so there's oil on the freeway so we have enough just to put your wipers on intermittent people are sliding into one another they freak out and if we haven't had rain in a couple of years it takes a quarter of an inch of rain to cause a mudslide so i always say to people california is not a state it's an acts of god theme park something's going bad here all the time it it is crazy but it's so funny it's like the fires you know you don't hear it's so it's so funny because you know you're from back east and you probably heard this when you moved out here and my girlfriend's moving out and her family doesn't say it because they know it's not but they they always say oh the earthquakes i'll be honest i there's probably been i've been out in la for 12 12 years 13 years and we have our earthquakes i've slept through half of them i've sat there at my desk typing my old roommate uh, i was sitting there one time i was typing and and i look he's watching tv he's watching a ball game and i'm typing on a computer and i go hey was that a is that an earthquake? He goes, I think so. And then now, because Facebook, I go, oh, it's an earthquake. I had a friend visiting from back east. He was out here with his family. And, oh, my God. I just thought an earthquake. I'm like, dude, it was a 4.3. It's not an earthquake. Yeah. All, all due respect, if you were around for Northridge or the Silmar quake, you would have a different sort of a mystical respect for those things. I'll tell you a story about the Northridge earthquake. I, I live in my home right down the street here in Studio City. My master bedroom is right next to my is like five feet from my swimming pool with a french door in between okay so uh i had had uh the the, the northridge earthquake happened on a sunday night uh at four thirty in the morning uh, uh i had had a hernia operation on that thursday so i'm knee deep halfway to a percocet jones man i was really done for and i was out my kids are gone out of the house so uh i i was in a lot of pain took a percocet this earthquake wakes me up at 4 30 in the morning and it wasn't the shaking from the earthquake it was water from my pool lapping over my bed the the french doors had jostled open and you know you'll see it you'll you'll see earthquake footage it's just kind of the shaking gets a tsunami in the pool and water washing over me is what woke me up and i i before before that quake at night, I, I had this hernia operation. I could barely walk around the house. It was impossible. But I learned a lot about the physical body. Uh, 
for a week after that, I felt no pain. I rushed over to my children's home and made sure they were okay. I moved furniture around my house. I'm lifting heavy stuff. I didn't feel one bit of pain for about another week. That was just the, the fight or flight syndrome that happens after that quake. A, a big one will get your attention. I didn't sleep with the lights off in my home for a year after that. Really? I, I had CNN on all night long because I refused to sit in the silence of the dark waiting for an aftershock. I couldn't stand it. That's amazing because I, I, I wasn't here then I mean, and so I didn't live through that one but it's, for these it's so funny because you feel it and it's like and they either they rumble or they hit. It's, it's, very, oh, it's yeah. very there's two different ways and yeah. and you know and I mean and I remember when I was doing corporate marketing for a restaurant called Granville Cafe I was at their Glendale location and I was talking to the one host uh, it's like you know just about you know the customer stuff and an earthquake hit, and I, talking about fight or flight, I he he couldn't believe it. I was up, stupid thing. I went outside. Yeah. I was up out of that table and out the door yeah. in two seconds. And then that's the stupid thing. You don't want to go on the street; my things will fall on you. But it's weird. But I but I haven't really felt the earthquake that the yeah. big one. Uh, and I went to the doctor after this because I wanted to make sure he had to do an investigation to see if my if the screen in my operation had moved or anything. And he said, what you experienced was like post-traumatic stress disorder because um, you uh, had medicated yourself and your body was completely a given, uh, uh, lo- uh, at, at a loss of control. So in order for you to get to a fight or flight stage, because you had taken these Percocets before you went to bed, your body had to work harder to get back to protect itself. And so the, the whole experience was more traumatic for you. <laughs> so I, I, I honestly, I, don't, I didn't sleep a full night for two years after that. Well, it's so weird. And how- also, control freaks have a difficult time with earthquakes. And I'm a bit of a control freak. Are you a control freak? freak? Oh, yeah. But- hey, now, explain. Like, what makes you a control freak? Like, my, my, my girlfriend is not a control freak, but she's like a neat freak. Like, it's what's great when she's moving out. I always get, <laughs> no, I, I get the cleanness. She's moving out here. But I always get the cleanness. <laughs> people like I won't clean because I go back I won't clean for like my apartment for like three months but I'm back there half the time so then like she's coming out Friday night I pick her up at the airport at 1130 at night the cleaning people are coming in at 8 in the morning on Friday but she's like she's like oh I'm going to clean and she'll sit there and go she's leaving I'm like why are you cleaning when you're leaving and she's like well because when I want to get back I'm with the place to be clean and I'm like but your place is always clean I've never her place I mean it's I mean, my place, I feel bad. It's like, she's one of those people who will look around and go, oh, the cleaning person missed that. I'm like, well, then I'll just give you the 80 bucks, okay? And you do it when you come out. But now what, what makes you a control you freak? Because then you'll take an undocumented citizen out of the workplace. You can't do that. But but I'm, I'm not a clean freak, but I, I like, I like uh, and it's just fear. It, all it is is fear. If stuff doesn't go the way you planned it, you know, we're, we're brittle. And, and we get jostled out of our mindset. And I happen to be that way. I've been that way all my life. I don't know what it is. It's just a neurosis. Uh, the same reason you need to do stand-up comedy to get the approval of strangers who are inebriated with alcohol. There's some sick you know, need. Right. But, uh, but uh, I've always been that way. And, they, and this doctor told me that people who uh, have, you know, are, tend to be a little more controlling have uh, more difficulty dealing with a quake because it's the most uncontrolled circumstantial ever experience that makes sense now now how about with flying what, what's your because i think control peaks don't, don't like flying what's your i'll deal? tell you when i was younger i didn't mind it but the older i get the more i mind it that's interesting and not because of 9-11 or any of that some people after that that changed their whole view of flying. i flew last year on 9-11 wow no but the reason being is and this sounds weird but the flight less it was virgin american it was like nine the flight was at 10 o'clock at night now i always get the super shuttle I'm the only person that night. I get up. There's no traffic. And then I'm thinking in my head, I'm thinking, these people are so stupid because by the time my flight leaves, 
and lands in Philadelphia, it's going to be September 12th. Okay, I'm leaving here. To, it's already September 12th there. So you I don't know where the window yeah. from. And, and I went in, and the plane was empty. Wow. And, but the TSA, first of all, TSA, to me, they all look like uh, relatives of George Zimmerman. I think it's like they have that, like that, like, like if they're my peers, I don't want those peers in my house. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say that, but it's just there. And it's in Philadelphia, it, it's because I, I fly so much, I've gotten to notice, you know, some of them are nice, but some are just jerks. And I don't know where they find these people. I don't know how they can judge me because, as I said, there are people that if I saw on the street, I would give them a quarter. That's you right. know what I mean. It's like, but with the flying, so you, so that you like you don't like flying now. I just get I, I'm I, I don't have the patience for it. But, but the, the the flying experience is worse now than it used to be. The food is bad. You look into the eyes of the flight attendants, and they just they have this forlorn look on their face, like I'd rather be anywhere but here. And it's just awful. The, the seats are too small. They're they're incrementally making them smaller, and I have long legs, and I feel sort of quasi claustrophobic. And I just hate it. Well, you know what's funny about the flighting? And now you're older than me, so you uh, remember more than I will. But and like my girlfriend's mom's friend used to be a flight attendant back in the day like if you said you were dating a flight attendant that was a big thing like Huge. they were they were like wow a flight attendant now i mean i mean you're uh i'm 50 you're probably 60 i'm, I'm a little over that okay but but you but you were when flight attendants were in that yeah. hot category sure. and it's just, it is so funny how it's changed because they like i was i flew first class i got an upgrade and i was like the flight attendant was awful and she was just yeah. like, it's like, wait a second, I'm flying first class. She's letting people walk up to use the bathroom. I'm not a snob, but you know, I don't fly first class no. a lot. I want to. What's the curtain for yeah, back there? Yeah, Stay they're back. just walking through. I'm like, I, that's my bathroom. <laughs> you know, I can finally get in that damn bathroom. <laughs> so, uh, so now, do you do you go out on the, uh, on the road at all to do comedy now? Or is I, I, I don't do it much. I'm going to do the improv in Vegas uh, in October. I, I Bud Friedman, who was one of my mentors when I started, the owner of the Improv in Hollywood, who no longer owns that, still does. The Vegas Improv at Harrah's, uh, Lake Tahoe, and Fantasy Springs down in the desert. And I do those three rooms for him because I'm, I'm, I, I like working those. That's my road gig, going to Vegas for a week. Now, when you go to Vegas, I guess because people visit Vegas. They do 50% of the audiences. So I, I, I can draw in Vegas. Okay, so they know, yes. they know of you because there's yeah. people from California. Right. Right. Now, do you ever get, have you ever had shows where people are disappointed? I'm not disappointed, but they expect you to be like the weatherman, and then you do your act. You ever have the people sit there that they can't separate that line that you are a? I mean, the thing we have to remember is you are a stand-up comic, and you were a stand-up comic first, right? And, and then not weatherman. everybody knows that. No, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I, I love to win those people over. I like to pull them to the other side of the equation, uh, especially if they've never heard that I've done comedy and that that's my background. And I always do. You know, Tom Dreesen. Uh, uh, taught me the great um, vaudeville lesson of when you go on stage to do two on you, which is to do something self-deprecating that also describes your character. So I do the weather jokes because that's my identity. And then I wean people off that. And for the last seven-eighths of my act now, nobody knows I'm a weatherman. They they just have to get my trust, do a couple of jokes up front about it and do it. No, we're not going to talk about the weather now. We're going to go somewhere else. It's fun. I like to win people over that way. Yeah, because that's that's what I think. you know. And I think people do have that misconception that they they think that you're a weatherman. From a marketing standpoint, it's very hard. Uh, for instance, you were talking about how difficult it is to get people to come and see you in this town. It's a jaded community, and everybody knows a comic or knows somebody in show business. There's nothing you can do to impress me. I've got to come to the ice house. I can. I've got to have dinner with you know Robert Downey Jr. Then I can. So, uh, they, but it's it's very 
difficult in what I do too to sort of sell tickets. The uh, the the way I build out a show now and sell tickets is that people who have come and experienced me and stand up from somewhere else. Just a cold call. Fritz Coleman, the weatherman's doing a concert at the El Portal Theater for a weekend. Come and see him do comedy. They have no idea what I'm going to do. They think I'm going to show up with maps and a tie and all that. So. Now, wh- how do you find your what? What do you write about? How do you do? You write a lot. I mean, a lot of times the comics, because you're constantly getting on stage, they write all the time. Do you write a lot, or your I time like so? F- but your time, because you do have a full time job. I mean, it's like you're basically. I mean, you do the weather, and so I'm sure you. Can't- I write every day, okay, because I enjoy that process. To me, you you know how this is. If if it's a good day, if you discover a concept that you think is going to bear fruit, there's nothing like writing a good piece of material that you can't wait to try. It's also, it, it's a, it's a, it can be a very dry, tedious process writing stand-up. Larry Miller, one of the great stand-ups, amazing. Uh, has a great line about it. He said, it's like operating, writing stand-up comedy is like operating a still. You put all these ingredients in this big boiler and it boils and all this stuff, all this mind power goes into it and all this material and all personal experience and, it, and, and, and this machine boils all the, uh, uh, the, the ingredients up. And then if you're lucky, like, once or twice a week, a drop comes out the other <laughs> end of the pipe, which is just a perfect explanation of it. Now, do you tweet? I don't tweet. I, I don't do social media as much as I should. I know I should. I know. I, I, it, now I'm getting ready to do a show for 50 plus people, Geezer Nation. I'm going to take it out. It's like for baby boomers. When I get closer to putting that thing into theaters, it's going to be an hour and a half. Like I don't call it a one-person show. I just call it like a single-topic monologue, and I go out and do 90 minutes. I will start milking social media for all it's worth but i don't do the maintenance all the time i know i should i know i'm shooting myself in the foot by not paying attention to it but i just don't have time yeah and that makes sense i mean, so I, just, I tweet and I, that sometimes i get a gauge in my jokes because i'll sit there and then actually for me tweeting makes you write a shorter joke because you can't right. elaborate you can't because i tend to overexpose and um and it's good but then you get bummed if you don't get any likes because you're like damn it and you see someone who's got a, somewhat of a name you know, like an alt comic, and they write something stupid, and like fifty people like it. And you're I know. Like, it. What the hell is this? Wait, yeah. this is material. It's and it's funny. so narcissistic. And I think people get preoccupied with what they're going to say in the thing. I just, I, I have a very old school method. I write for a couple hours a day if I can, an hour, two hours. I write in longhand on a legal pad, and then if it's worth anything, I put it in the computer. I'm, I'm very old. I just love the tactile experience of writing. I, I do that too. You know, it's funny. Is I don't even have my act written down. Like I have little notes. I don't, yeah. I don't put it in a computer, and because mm-hmm. I, I don't do stand up that much anymore. I do it. A Occasionally, I do it for fun now because I just I don't want to go you know drive thirty five minutes to do seven minutes of material. Right. It's not, I can go go back east. I can get it 15, 25, 30 minute sets. I'm right. fine with that. But I do the same thing. I write it out because it doesn't even. I'm I'm, I'm working on a one man show about because I have congestive heart failure, so I'm writing about that. And I I have this little Chromebook, but I still. I have to handwrite it because right. it just it feels like you're like when you're typing it, it doesn't feel like you're writing. It's just and I process. write on my feet. I write the idea down, and then I walk around my house and I pretend I'm in front of an audience. There's just something that happens of the cadence of your walking and standing there and making eye contact. I, they call it writing on your feet. I find that I get the timing and the 
and the editing better when I'm standing up saying it out loud than I am writing. So I get the basic concept handwritten, then I get up on my feet, and if it sounds good, and then if it works in the club one or two times, then I put it in the computer. How often do you get on stage, would you say? Because you were scheduled, you're, you're, man, you're a busy I, I man. I work a split shift uh, at, at the news. I work noon to 6.30, because I do the 5 and 6, and they're all done live. Then I'm back at 8.30 to do the 11 o'clock news. So it's uh, noon to 6.30 and 8.30 to midnight. And so I can get up once or twice a week, uh, uh, which is, uh, I wish I could get up more. As you know, you have to do it more, but I, I, I don't have that luxury. We have like five minutes left. Uh, tell me another good story of someone, someone who just was bothered you or someone was really nice to you. Either way. No, then, then you get, we're, we're talking about obsessive personality things like being a control freak. Then you get, then you get weather geeks out there and who will... See, I'm not a big fan of email in the workplace because what it has done is broken down the firewall between the whacked out general public and me. I liked it the old day when there was an attractive receptionist there. And if somebody called them and called me a jerk in so many words, she would edit it and make it softer. This man disapproved of what you're forking. And there was a little, you know, there's a little padding there. Now people can just with such vitriol can send you emails. But but when you're in in the weather, and I'm not a, I'm not a meteorologist. I'm a communica- I'm I'm a communications person. I take the science of weather, boil it down into two minutes of practical information. Because people don't care about high pressure and low pressure. They say, for the love of God, just tell me, should I send my daughter to preschool tomorrow with a Hello Kitty raincoat or not? Right. That's all. That's all they want to know. They don't care about the high pressure. So, but, but you get the geeks, and that's all they care about. And they'll say, you know, uh, you said the barometric pressure was 29.86 at 5 o'clock. Well, I have a, I have a digital gauge here in my den. And oh, you know what? You're misleading the general public. And then you have to respond to all those because the station wants you to respond to them, and it's awful. So, you know, you're hoisted by your own thing. That's amazing that people, I mean, I, I don't even know the barometric here's, here's how I know, and growing up back east, you know, I had a head injury years ago. And I know when... When the humidity's high, my head hurts right here. No, that's and right. And that's how I know because it's the humidity goes up. I don't know what the I don't need to see the camera. No. I know I know what it's when I walk. Those are the calls I get. Those are the calls I get. I literally got a call like this from a lady. She said, "You know, you predicted rain on Saturday, and it didn't rain on Saturday. I could have told you it wasn't going to rain because if it was going to rain, my knee would have hurt." She had arthritis in her knees and arthritic people. When you have an injury like what you had. Um, it's not whatever the barometric pressure is. It's the change in the barometric pressure because barometric pressure is the pressure of the atmosphere on your body. It's 14.5 pounds per square inch. And when that fluctuates, it allows less or more blood in the area where your injury occurs, and that allows you to ache. And so people with arthritis, if your blood expands in an injured knee with the arthritis, it hurts more. It's put more pressure on your nerves down in there. So people know it's, it's very – so she was right, which was funny, but I just can't. Hire put somebody on retainer that has right. arthritic knee. <laughs> yeah, my knee hurts. <laughs> average. Uh, so uh, give us a plug some of your stuff because we're, we're going to wrap up soon. Uh, shows coming up. Anything uh, you want to If you don't mind, I would love to plug a charity sure, function. I, I do work for this uh, group called the Valley Interfaith Council, and we're doing a show. Uh, at the Sherman Oaks East Valley Adult Center on Saturday, September 28th, 100% of the proceeds uh, go to uh, supply uh, seniors who have fallen below the economic cracks with three meals a day. It's, it's a wonderful thing. If you would love to go, we'd love to see you there. I'm going to be the headliner. I'm going to have a group called the Bornsteins, which do comic mind reading, and they're hysterical. You can uh, uh, contact them directly at Sherman Oaks East Valley Adult Center, or you can uh, reach them online at Vic.
It's www.vic-la.org. That's vic-la.org. Love to see you there. Thank you for the opportunity to say that. And you have a website? I do, fritzcoleman.com. Okay. You can reach me at nbcla.com and whine about the weather if you want to. It was supposed to be 85 exactly. today. It's 86. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. And, and it was funny because when I, it, was, it was a pain in the ass for me with the jury duty. And I hate scat because I don't miss my shows. And I was like, I couldn't book anyone. And thankfully, you know, it worked out. But I want to thank you for coming on. It was great. I, I, you're, you're really easy to talk to. This could go on for a long time. And you're good at this. And I thank appreciate you. the opportunity. I appreciate that. You're saying that. And people, uh, you can follow me at Twitter, at Cooper Talk also. Send me an email, cooper at indie100, I-N-D-I-E 100.com. My website is coopertalk.net, and that's uh, I have about 180 episodes. You can also go to Stitcher Radio or iTunes and just type in one word, Cooper Talk. Also, usually maybe, I don't think this Thursday, but usually Thursday you can hear me at uh, midnight, uh, West Coast time on a WIP 94 Sports Radio Philadelphia, calling on the Big Daddy Graham Show. But the Eagles play this week, and this Friday at 6 o'clock you can hear me on the Lowrider Show. I'm actually coming in the studio tonight to type taped three hours with those guys. You can see, listen to Cooper Talk and listen to that. So I want to thank you. Um, follow me at Twitter, at Cooper Talk. Please send me an email, Cooper Indy 100, I-N-D-I-E 100. And also, drink your water, take your vegetables, <laughs> eat your vegetables, and take your vitamins. I'm Steve Cooper. Have a great day.